0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 4. of Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God and Before the throne there was a seat of glass like unto crystal there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne, and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure they are and were created. We have entered into the third and final portion of the book, although certainly the largest part. We have had the vision of um, uh, the things which John had seen, that vision of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. We have had the uh, declaration of the things that are. The condition of the seven churches of Asia Minor. And Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And now we have entered uh, into the vision of the things which must be hereafter. Uh, A symbolic history of the world after the time of uh, the Apostle John. We have revealed to us heavenly... And spiritual realities. And as the uh, we have been going verse by verse, the picture is beginning to take shape. John is looking into that heavenly tabernacle. He's able to look into the Holy of Holies. There's no veil. He's able to see the divine throne, the ark, that symbol of God's presence. In the holy place, there are the twenty-four elders, the twenty-four priest-kings sitting upon their thrones. There is the menorah, that seven-branched candlestick, representing the spirit, the light of the churches. And there is something of a glassy pavement before the throne. Certainly a brilliant and breathtaking scene. We are in the final part, uh, but the largest part, of the description of the heavenly throne room scene. And this is the living creatures in our King James Bible called beasts. In the context of Revelation, perhaps an unhappy rendering because of the negative connotation that beast carries in the rest of the book. But quite literally in uh, in the Greek, living things, living creatures, maybe even animals would be a, uh, a fair uh, translation. Their relationship to the living creatures of Ezekiel can hardly be missed. Last time we were in John's Apocalypse, we considered... Uh, the background of this, Ezekiel calls uh, these creatures cherubim, which takes us all the way back to Genesis. This is not the first time that the cherubs have appeared. And we learned uh, from Genesis and Ezekiel a handful of things. One, these are living creatures, angelic beings, and they are portrayed as upholding God's throne. They are uh, upholders of God's providential dominion. They are uh, portrayed as something of a living chariot that carries his throne about, and as agents of his providence carrying out his commands. We'll look at this uh, briefly in Ezekiel, but God issues a command and they're portrayed as going out and coming back like flashes of lightning. And they are very close to his throne, as if they were his special confidants, waiting upon his word and responding to him. We might be inclined to think that the uh, very same beings are in view as we come to Revelation chapters 4 and 5. And they are much the same, except it does appear that it is intended that these are men and not angels. Look again at Revelation chapter 5. Unlike uh, the angelic host, these four living creatures uh, participate in the song of the visible church concerning redemption. We know that um, Christ came to represent fallen mankind in his nature as a savior of men, but not for angels. The song would seem to be most inappropriate in their mouths. But beginning in verse 8, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts... And four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us. To God, by Thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And has made us unto our God kings and priests. And we shall reign on the earth. They participate in the redemption song. The four beasts and the four and twenty elders. Praise God. Praise the Lamb. Because he was slain and had redeemed them. And the text has redeemed us to God by thy blood. Interpreters have evaluated this in different ways, but in my mind this consideration is determinative with respect to their identity. And we also find that they uh, serve something of a ministerial function by way of teaching and proclamation. We have this immediately in our text in Revelation chapter 4 beginning in verse 8. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rested not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, And worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. We find the four living creatures calling the people of God to worship. They um, give some instruction in God. Yes in his being, and in his attributes. And this becomes something of a call to worship. The 24 elders, representative of the church, respond in worship. Uh, on balance, we'll see as we go forth that these, these uh, living creatures seem to have special insight into God's providence. They obey God's commandments in the context of that providence, and they exhort others to do so. Having said all of this, I will confess that we have before us uh, what I would simply call a prima facie case. It's um, far from everything that it could be, but I wanted to put some uh, uh, plausibility on the first face so that as we begin to walk through. Uh, we will see. I think this interpretation confirmed and strengthened by um, by the verses as we go. But before pressing on, some have claimed some interpreters have looked at this and said that the shift seems to be forced. That in all the rest of Revelation the cherubs are angelic beings, but now we come to these very same images, and now you claim them to be men. Is this forced? In the context of the book, I would have to say no. Um, If you remember, there's two points that are uh, quite germane here. One, the ministers of the churches have already been addressed as angels. Their messenger function very much at the forefront. And also, as far as um, the support of God's uh, government and providential dominion, his special confidants standing ready to... Carry out his will. This is fully consistent with what we have seen of all of the uh, people of God, that they are to be his priests and kings in uh, all of the earth. But we will have further opportunity to test our understanding as we work work our way through this text here. This morning I wanted to just look at the second half of verse 6. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Immediately, we have a a difficult image that gets all the more difficult by the uh, strange expression. In the midst of the throne and round about the throne, which is a thing very difficult to understand. It's as if to say they were on the throne and around it. A strange way of speaking, to be sure. There's a couple of very plausible explanations for this. I'll set them before you. First, uh, if we think of the throw not narrowly, but largely, including uh, the chair itself, as well as perhaps the steps or platform that lead to it, uh, you could very well be... Uh, in one regard, if standing on the steps, for example, in the midst of the throne, as well as circling the chair. And this would be one way of, uh, of handling the difficulty. Um, and the, So you'd want to say that they were in the midst of it, they were there on it, they were close to it, but also that they were round about it as ones that were stationed on its four sides. Another way of rendering this round about the throne would be in the circuit of the throne. So they are stationed around it. E.B. Eliot explains it in this way. You remember uh, Eliot uh, said that it was altogether likely here that the divine throne is enveloped in the glory cloud. Very much the way that it is in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 6. Part of the evidence of this is not just the relationship to those prophecies, but the green rainbow, as if the um, as if the cloud, as it were, is bearing this um, rainbow that is like unto an emerald. And um, he said, if um, if these four living creatures were uh, out at the very fringes of a not very well defined glory cloud, in other words more like a haze or a mist, a mist where you can't exactly see its edges. They are visible on its fringes, and they are in a circuit around the throne. You would have a description very much like this. They are in the midst of the glory, uh, right there with the throne. They are stationed also in a circumference around the throne, and visible through it. This would be another possible explanation. For our purposes, I think we do well just to note that they are mirror. Unto the throne than the uh, 24 thrones of the elders. They are very close to it. That much we can say with a very high degree of confidence. The second description here is also difficult, but they are full of eyes before and behind. It's pretty clear that this um, signifies that they have great vision. And in being able to look in both directions, we would say that they have the throne in view. We might say something like this. They have one eye upon the throne, one eye upon God, their king. And they're able to look in the opposite direction to the ring of the elders, the 24 elders, as if they have uh, another eye, their other eye upon um, upon their charges, the people of the church. So, eyes looking in both direction and they have great vision. I wanted to consider just one use uh, before, uh, well, one use today, which is sufficient. And we'll look at some of the other aspects of this next week. Let us pray in faith that the Lord will provide a sufficient number of officers for the well-being of His church. I feel the uh, need to explain something here, because there's great difficulty here. You're going to find that what I'm going to do now is I'm going to to ground our use quite a bit more broadly than on Revelation chapter 6. If you were to say to me, Pastor, how confident are you that you have the right interpretation of these four beasts? I would say pretty confident. I had an opportunity to study the history of interpretation and see if the competing arguments fall out. I think that this is the right one. I think as we go, hopefully your confidence will grow as well. And yet I also confess the difficulty that's involved in these images. And I feel the need to ground our doctrine and our practice more broadly than on uh, images that can certainly bedazzle. Uh, the eyes so with that in view first uh, let us consider our text Uh, there were four cherubs in the circuit of the throne very much like the angels in ezekiel chapter one they seem to be ready to do god's bidding and to hasten out to the four corners of the world in fulfillment of their mission i mentioned it earlier Ezekiel says this, The living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning. Verse 14 of chapter 1. The description goes on and says that they do not turn when they go either. So, you have the four and they are stationed to go out and do God's bidding throughout all of the earth. He sends one to the south and one to the north and so on. So, these are very much like the angels of God's providence. But as I've mentioned, I take these to be ministers of the gospel, prepared to carry that same gospel at God's bidding to the four quarters of the world. We would also notice that they are fewer than the 24 elders, which, if you remember, are representative of um, uh, the entire church, all of the membership of the church. You remember that uh, the priests and Levites, and in this case the priest kings, all of the people of God. Uh, in ancient times, they came up by course for the service of God. The priests and the Levites did. They came up in twenty-four cor- courses, and they had twenty-four representative heads. They represented all of them, and so it is here. You have the um, uh, the priesthood of all believers, all of the believers reckoned here, and they their twenty-four courses, all in attendance. So here you have something of a, of a ratio. You've got these four living creatures and then the 24 elders, or the 24 beasts, the ministers. These four, the stationing of these four on the four quarters would seem to be enough to serve all of those that are gathered about the throne, proclaiming God's glory, teaching them, calling them to worship. But I do believe that we get a picture of a spiritual reality as well. Uh, the spirit remember here we have uncovered for something of a spiritual view of ministers that are present in an adequate number for the service of the church under the four corners of the world. Well, that's a lot to um, derive here from this place. We might feel that we're far from sure-footed. But I want to ground our duty and some of its justification now more broadly, so that even if we should misunderstand um, uh, Revelation 4.6, we will be sure that we have not misunderstood the mind of God uh, more broadly. And so here we want to uh, ground our doctrine and our practice more broadly on what theologians call the analogy of faith, what is the whole teaching of Scripture, uh, present to us so that we can be sure that we've not taken an obscure uh, passage of scripture and done something funny or strange with it first turn with me in your bibles to Matthew chapter 10 and here we have a a simple presentation of the duty to pray that the lord would provide an adequate number of ministers for his church for his people <laughs> Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, Because they fainted and were scattered abroad, as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. And so here we have our duty. The image is, is very plain here in our text. Jesus is surrounded by a great many that are in need of ministry. Jesus and his immediate disciples, those that would be qualified for teaching and shepherding these people, are comparatively few. And with this in view, Jesus says, Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into this plenteous harvest. This seems to be a practical consideration that is very pressing in our own day. It appears to me that in our own context, in our own small circles of movement, that the harvest is more plentiful than the laborers. I have mentioned to you uh, in times past that... um, uh, we have been over the years in contact with very small groups of Reformed people all over the country that have uh, a desire for uh, a Reformed pastor. I'll get communications uh, to this effect. Uh, we've discovered you online and have listened to the sermons, and we um, we want to have a church like what you have there. Can you send us a man? And... Uh, I, I can't. The harvest is greater than the, the number of uh, laborers. You think about um, uh, our own uh, immediate sphere, our brethren in East Texas gathered and yet with no pastor. If you go around to the families there and you ask them what they think the great need of the church is, they'll say, we need a, uh, a pastor. And yet, uh, a suitable man is a, is a rare thing for a work like that. Um, so, our, our churches, our sorts of churches are few. There is the possibility and the opportunity for a greater harvest. And yet, the laborers are so very few. I wanted to highlight something. This is very important in our own history. For those of you that have been studying along with the session in the Westminster Form of Government and the Directory of Church Government, the, the Directory for Church Government, you will have noticed, said that officers are not necessary in order to have a church or a congregation. They are not necessary for its being but they are necessary for its well-being. And uh, officers will be esteemed uh, as important in proportion to the importance that we place upon our own spiritual well-being. This is something that is greatly desirable for the churches. And this becomes a great duty of prayer because ultimately only the Lord can provide them. We cannot make men ministers and elders. We can implement means, we can devise a course of theological study, we can do all sorts of things, but we cannot make a man a minister. That depends upon the Lord Jesus Christ, depends upon the Lord of the harvest. The Lord Himself must give the man the gifts. And the graces, and call into the work. In all of our Christology, or in all of our ecclesiology, over the years, I've said we, we need to see the connection between all of the parts of our doctrine of the church and its relationship to the King of the Church. And we don't quite think of calling rightly if we think of uh, if we think of ourselves as actually calling men to uh, the ministry. Sometimes we talk in that way in a shorthand. But ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ makes His calling of a man evident in the church. That's a different way. When we call a man and uh, the people have an election and the officers are ordained and all of that sort of thing, we ought not to imagine that we made that man an officer. We recognize in that way that Jesus Christ was calling him to the uh, work. The Lord himself has to provide the man. And you remember that uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, a text that we've come back to time and time again, it was the ascended Lord Jesus Christ that provided and gave apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastors and teachers. They were the gift of the ascended Christ to his people. And so we must look to him to give this gift. But I wanted to not only impress upon you the duty of this, but this duty is, uh, is coupled with a promise so that we pray in faith, knowing that God will answer this prayer in his due time and in his season, but he will answer in the affirmative, and he will provide. You say, well, how do you, how do you know this to be the case First of all, he's commanded us to pray for it. And as we had occasion uh, to observe last week, he never bids us to pray in vain when he tells us to pray for something. He's not uh, bidding us to pray for uh, this thing, and he has no intention of giving it to us. As a matter of fact, as we find our hearts more and more turned to fulfill this duty and to pray for officers, That also is a work of the spirit of grace in the hearts of his people. A work of the spirit of grace and supplication, turning our hearts to pray for it. And also an encouraging sign that the answer is yet uh, at the door. Some other evidence. Revelation chapter 4 is a picture that seems to imply an adequate number of officers But even more broadly than this, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 10. We are taught in the Scripture that Jesus Christ is a good shepherd of the sheep, and that he meets the needs of his flock as a good and faithful shepherd. And if offices are indeed necessary for the well-being of his people, we can be sure that the good shepherd will, according to his own goodness and faithfulness in his shepherding, provide those officers. So look with me to John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him. For they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them. But they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is an hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. I think that we can glean some things uh, with certainty from the very surface of the text here. Jesus here preaches himself as the good shepherd of the sheep. And he is a shepherd uh, who is good and loving to the degree that he lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus will also teach them that there is no greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. So here Jesus is not only the good sheep, but um, he bears for them the greatest of all possible love. And if, you, if I might borrow from the Apostle Paul a, um, uh, a form of reasoning, if, if the Lord Jesus Christ would pay the ultimate price and lay down his life for the redemption of his sheep, will he not also provide all other things that are necessary for their well-being? Having set such a great love upon them, will he then withhold the things that are necessary for their spiritual well-being? I think we have an argument very much like this uh, in the text. Jesus' uh, shepherding is not only that they might have life, but that they might have it in a great and superabounding abundance. I think that there's no reason to doubt that the Lord Jesus will provide an adequate number of officers for his people. But we are been to pray in faith, uh, expecting that he will provide the officers that are necessary in season. And I thought we might uh, unite our hearts to that effect. Now, let us pray together.